and welcome to the AdFontes podcast. My name is Rhys Laverty. I am the senior editor of the journal AdFontes, uh, and I'm joined as always by my colleague and co-host, the poetry editor at AdFontes, Colin Redimer. Colin, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, and it's good to hear your charming British voice. It's a slightly husky voice. Everyone's been ill in our house this week. Um, and as the dad, you've just got to kind of soldier on and pretend that you're not as ill as everybody else. What? Um, that's not, that's the mom's job in America. Is, <laughs> the dad, the dad lies on the couch and says, I need, I'm dying. I need NyQuil. Or, Strangling you know. his son, going, why are you little? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not <laughs> how we do it in the old world. You know, there's still a great sense of noblesse oblige about uh, the head of the household. You know, George, George Banks in, uh, in Mary Poppins. Yeah, that's me. Um, so I come home every day. <laughs> the life I lead. <laughs> oh dear. Um, anyway, enough about our home lives. Um, we are um, back to our, our read through of uh, Begotten or Made by Oliver O'Donovan. Uh, this is a book republished by the Davenant Institute um, within the last year or two, originally delivered as a series of lectures in the early 1980s um, about the topic of. Uh, IVF and related issues uh, here in the UK and then we um, it was turned into a book in the 80s Oxford University Press and we uh, at the Davenant Institute gained the rights to um, republish it so you can find that on uh, the Davenant Institute website and we've been leisurely making our way through um, over the course of several months we are today reaching the start of chapter three of the book, uh, we, procreation we're just about halfway, donor. just about halfway through, almost ish. Yeah, yeah. if I look, pick up my hard copy here, we're on page. What page are we on? Page thirty-seven, <clears throat> 37. of uh, yeah, not quite. <laughs> we're approaching halfway. Um, uh, yeah, we're more than a third through. Let's say. Um, so for the last yeah. chapter, he's been talking about uh, you know transgenderism. He calls it transsexualism and the ways in which medical technology can and has gotten involved in, in, in both thinking about and then attempting to resolve, you know, that condition here in chapter three, we we're pivoting back. Right. So now we're back at like what he's really trying to talk about. So that was a, a bit of a detour. Is that fair to say? Yes, it was. Um, but, and he, he acknowledges at the start of chapter two that it may seem odd that he decides to kind of go off the rails and start to talk about, um, what he then calls transsexualism. Um, but it's, uh, to kind of expose a wider point about the effect which, um, medical technique has on the way that we conceive of human persons and the way that we conceive of, uh, kind of the nature of sexuality um it becomes something that we can sort of in principle um intervene in and um in chapter one he talks about this um revolution that's happened in the sense of what freedom is um and um what he calls it the liberal revolution liberality being to do with freedom and that, you know, our sense of freedom is now um one of we want to be free from kind of unchosen burdens um and that gives way at the end towards the end of the um chapter on transsexualism on whose job it is to kind of burden people with reality or do we actually kind of muster either all our social efforts or all our technological and state efforts to kind of relieving people of the burden of reality um yeah he's covered a lot it's a very dense work so it's sort of hard to summarize exactly everything we've discussed but and you can go back and listen to you know the previous episodes if, if you wanted to to catch up with that here here he's sort of back to his primary topic and so he says mm. uh he wants to discuss the question of procreation with the aid of human gametes donated by a third party so you know this is uh this is like let's let's say you've got a couple they're infertile many such cases right or or You've had one kid and then you, you can't conceive again. The question arises, do we, <clears throat> do we adopt, right? That's sort mm -hmm. of obviously one option. Do we just kind of uh, take this as our cross and bear it and find other ways to, to live our lives, you know, faithfully and in community with others? Or um, do we accept artificial insemination? Do we accept a donor egg from someone? And um, Or rather here... And for most of the chapter, and in the context he's writing at the time, it's, the concern is donor sperm. Um, mm -hmm. And donor eggs are a much more novel idea at this point. You know, he's writing this in the early 1980s, and then he, he gets to that um, more towards the end of the chapter. Though he says at the start of the chapter, he's talking about things which are largely common between um, the 
the, the issues of um, ovum donation or semen donation, um, but he largely has the donation of sperm in focus throughout the most of the, most of the chapter. Sure, sure. But but I think the, the point he makes here at the first page is just to say, why are we talking about this at all? Well, we're talking about it because the practical possibility has been raised by technical procedures. Um, <clears throat> so we have, we have a way now of taking sperm, you know, fertilizing an egg that's in a woman. Or I actually think at the very bottom of 37, he says, today we must talk not only of semen, but of ovum, mm. ovum donation. So I think I, I, would, I would disagree maybe with that reading, Reese. I think while he might talk a little bit more about sperm donation, he's sort of saying at this point we're talking about either. We're not going to talk about the differences between them. We mm. just want to talk about what it would mean if you were to do this, right? So again, much yeah. like much like with the uh, transgenderism, transsexualism chapter, his concern is primarily with what it means if we do these things, right? So what is the meaning of gamete donation, to use his term? Um, and the first the first major point I think he's he wants to make is the only reason we can have this conversation is because of a development of a technical procedure. So that that alone I think is worth like a quick moment of reflection, like. Mm. What what does it mean that technical procedures, they do they do they change the conditions in which we understand the meaning of reality? Like that's it seems like a that's implied in what he's saying, right? Yeah, and, and later on he um, has a, a we won't get get to this today, knowing the pace at which we go. But um, he has this point where he says, you know, we need to just step back and acknowledge and say the fact that there are some people alive today with three biological parents. Um, when he's really there talking about about kind of surrogacy and egg donation, you know, you have the the, the surrogate mother, the biological inverted commas, whatever we mean by that, um, mother who donates the egg and then the father who donates the sperm. Um, yeah, it's something that we now sort of take for granted. And it's interesting reading this something forty years ago. He describes all these various sort of scenarios of. Who donates what? Sperm donation, egg donation, womb leasing, surrogacy, which he says naturally at that point people are kind of recoiling from, and yet forty years later these things are kind of ubiquitous and and, and things that, that we take for granted. So, um, and I think yeah, you're right. At least my generation is probably one of the first ones where you had real adult humans now who are having to think through what this means for them on the receiving end of this process, like. Well, because that's how they were brought into being. I have a very, I have a, a good friend from uh, the church I used to go to. Always grew up, you know, and it, and it was kind of funny, like in family photos, he didn't quite look like, you know, his his dad. And then it turns out when he was in his late twenties, after his dad was dead, he found out he was via sperm donor. His dad was infertile. Um, wow. And so, you know, he had to sort of sit there and think through, like, what does this mean? You know, and it's not, there's no obvious answer to that um, on, on one level. Uh, he's still a human. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still a member of his family. His parents still loved him. I don't, there was no traumatic, you know, problem in his family um, on a psychological, behavioral, spiritual level. But, uh, but it, it is a, it's a different kind of question about your existence to have to ask than, you know, the the one that we're used to having asked. Like, you know, mm. this is my grandparents and they're kind of messed up. What is it? Who am I? What does this mean? How did I, where did I come from? And now you have to think about like some, some guy in a room, you know, with a cup. <laughs> Offering his contribution. Offering yeah. his contribution to the, you know, to the history of the world. <laughs> However many times yeah. he decides to do that. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting that O'Donovan touches on that, the, the question of, you know, what, what the, the right of the child, let's say, to know um, and what that does to their kind of self-understanding. Um, and the, you know, even then, 40 years ago, debates on whether children have a right to that information. Um, and in the UK at the minute, I don't know what it's like in the US or elsewhere, but I think this is generally the case that 
actually anonymity is assumed um, if that's what the donor wants and the, the child doesn't have a right to find out. Um, mm-hmm. But I know there's kind of pressure to change that. But that's not what O'Donovan's interested in here, actually. It's not an extended meditation on what is it like to be a child who is created in this way. He's actually far more interested in the effect on marriage <clears throat> and right. what it says about that. Again, it's just an interesting assumption this 40 years ago that when he's talking about people having children, he doesn't even have to even have a passing comment about you know, and this includes cohabiting long-term couples or whatever, you know, um, which in itself is just, just one of those interesting um, kind of things that, that dates the text slightly and yet is probably actually worthy of some consideration. But he's also not just a straightforward reactionary. So that's, you know, mm. you could imagine somebody 40 years ago, and I'm sure somebody did write it, but maybe if, if this was your position, it was sort of so obvious to you, you didn't want to write it. It was just like, well, this is bad. Let's stop it. You know, this is like very Ludditism. Um, on 38, he actually says, uh, the purpose of this practice is to overcome infertility, to allow marriage to achieve the natural good. This is what you're saying, right? That's about marriage. Mm. To allow marriage to achieve the natural good, which is set before human marriage in general. What's that good? The good of procreation. And as such, that's a perfectly proper medical concern. Mm-hmm. You know? So Yeah, it's it's it, it aims its end is the same as any end in medicine. As such, its purpose is entirely in accord with the proper concerns of medicine to overcome sickness and failure in man's bodily nature. And so let's um, just you know, reminding ourselves of that, I've got eyes, right? You got eyes? I have two. In fact. You've got two. That's great. That's wonderful. And so the I grew them myself. <laughs> so you know the eye. The point of the eye is to see, and medical tech—that's good. It's a natural mm-hmm. good, and the medical technique uh, can be brought in in cases <clears throat> where your eyes can't achieve that natural good to enable them to see, right? Mm-hmm. So the the procreative capacity is the one capacity where the good of the bodily organs are divided into two, as opposed to all existing in one. So it would be as if you and your spouse, you know, had to kiss one another to be able to see or something. And like, what if the kisses weren't working? Of course, we would go in and see if there's a way that we can make the kisses make the vision possible. And so that's, that's I think, a way of trying to conceptualize this. The, the natural good of your procreative organs, your nether regions, as it were, don't mm-hmm. function on their own. They do function with the aid of another set that you have to go out and, you know, uh, accomplish the good with. And so med- well, med- medical sorry. technique can come in and help you accomplish that, med- that, that good, right? It's, make sure, it's just he's saying medicine always is trying to help make sure that your organs can accomplish their natural good. Yeah, but then I guess the, so the, the point he then says is, though, but it doesn't cure and enable the um, organ to function, um, but it acts rather by circumvention and then um, he then introduces this is bottom of page 38 for those following um, it acts by compensation uh, wait 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 else so is brought in you're saying if it doesn't cure it it's no good that doesn't that doesn't make any sense I'm sitting here wearing glasses Reese. I'm, I'm, I'm wearing glasses you think I have to take my glasses I have, off to I have, be on the podcast I have 20, with 20 you? vision um, well so this, this is the, but this is what he says Reese so, is he, opposed <laughs> to you wearing contact lenses and glasses you heard here to hear first you got to take them off you to accept listen. good from the hand of the Lord shall you not also accept evil Colin <laughs> You know, um, you've been you've been to Job's optometrist. You know, that's, that's <laughs> um, but so I think he's actually sort of in myself. I felt this at least. He's kind of leading the reactionary here. So he says, "Oh, but this doesn't actually cure; it circumvents." And mm-hmm. that you know, to the kind of conservative minded reader, you think, "Well, you're trying to circumvent your creaturely failings. That's bad. Don't do that." Um, um, but he says, "Problem page thirty-eight. It is not a curative accomplishment, accomplishments, but a compensatory one." Does this make it improper? If we were to say so, we would be forced to take a very severe view of many established forms of medical assistance. Prosthetic limbs, surgical boots, false teeth, all compensate for a lack which is caused by disease without actually aiming to cure the problem at its source. So then he sort of, you know, jumps on the conservative reactionary who's going along with him and says, well, compensation replacement as such can't be a problem because otherwise you're going to be opposed to prosthetic limbs. Let's take your example. Okay, say I can't see. Say actually my eyes are incurable. But they invent some sort of new robot eye that I can stick in my head. Um, is you know, I don't think in principle we would, act, we would be opposed to that if, if that became a thing. Yeah, I, I look forward to my robot eyes. 
<laughs> I, I welcome be in, my technical entirely, overlords. <laughs> yeah, but in, entirely offline, analog robot eyes. Um, if I'm ever in that situation, I um, I, I think so. Just to sort of think it through, we did glasses and we did eyes. Okay, so prosthetic limbs, uh, false teeth. I I have I've got a leg. It's not a great leg, but it's okay. It helps me get around. You know, I fell down and my leg got broken and had to be sawed off for whatever reason. When you're putting a prosthetic leg on, you know, ideally when you go to, I fell down and I broke my leg in a horrible way. It was like run over multiple times by a car and they backed up over it a few times. You know, it's just completely mangled. Stop, stop. (laughs) He's already dead. You go to the doctor. Ideally, what he's saying is, right, and I think this is right. In the ideal, the doctor cures me. And gets mm-hmm. my leg functioning at the level that it was at before, right? But if the doctor looks at my leg and they do whatever they can for my leg and my leg's not getting better and I lose the leg because it's just not going to work ever again, there's another question, which is the leg accomplished some good. The leg can no longer be made to accomplish the good. Is there another way that we can help you accomplish the good that your leg accomplished? Mm-hmm. And that's where you get a prosthetic leg from. Is that is that is that an, that's an example of we can't curative it, we can't cure it, but we can compensatory it. So we'll have a compensatory good. Yeah, Comp- compensate would to be comp- the verb. Compensate. Yeah. You know, there's that uh, that famous racer. I don't know if you're familiar with this guy who had these like uh, these springs oh. for legs. O- Oscar Pistorius. Oscar Pistorius. Yeah, he had springs. He killed his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Did he kill his girlfriend? <laughs> Are you pretending here? No, <laughs> I thought he was—he was just like an Olympic athlete, right? But he had no I mean, legs. There, there are numerous, you know, Paralympic athletes who are missing one or two legs and end up in whatever the appropriate race is. But really, uh, Oscar Pistorius Oscar very famously killed his girlfriend and is currently in prison for that. Yeah. Well, I was a fan until now. <laughs> I remember growing up; I was very impressed with him because he ran so fast with those springs. Could couldn't outrun the South African Police Department. Um. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> well, that that I mean, it raises. I mean, I, here's why I brought up the 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 racer who has no legs who gets these con- compensatory legs to compensate. Mm-hmm. You know, what if the com- compensation is actually superior? Is that possible? And it, I mean, that... th- those aren't his. As I understand it, those were not his permanent legs, and this is generally the case with Paralympic athletes. Those are like. Those are your running legs, um, and they have, I think, normal prosthetics the rest of the time. I'm probably offending some, you know, disabled person out there who can correct me, but I, I'm fairly sure that Paralympic athletes don't walk around with their their blades. I think they're called all the time. Okay, so, but I, I'm not I'm not even trying to talk about them as a class. I'm just trying to talk about the question of is it possible? Okay. Yeah, so yeah. like let's go back to the robotic eye because apparently you're fine offending the blind but not... You're, uh, you're talking about the six million dollar man, really, aren't you? I don't know what that is. Well, it's an American thing from back in the day when six million dollars was a lot of money. I'm not, make you into a <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> Neither am I, and I'm not American. Oh. This is your heritage, Colin. Yeah, but it gets to the provinces later. <laughs> <laughs> So and it's all kind of garbled and you know lost from the source. I get I get this robotic eye put in my head, right? Because my mm-hmm. eyes, you know, let's say my vision gets much worse and I go blind. They put the robotic eye in. Now, what if the robotic eye is actually much better than my regular eye? And won't you won't and you know does not tend to sort of deteriorate as you reach old age, as most people's vision does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't that present another sort of a problem? Uh. I don't know. What is the problem? That if you offer it to people who have an eye problem and it's actually better, is then everybody going to be like, well, I want one, even though my eyes are fine, because this one is better. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because I want to accomplish the good. And isn't the good of my body? What if the good of my body can be better than my body can make it? Can I? Can I... Just Should you accomplish imp- it with something that is not your body? Yeah, can I import a bunch of compensatory goods to to solve problems, even though the body is accomplishing the good of itself? Uh, uh, if it's solving problems is a is a slippery term, so there's a difference between 
curing your inability to walk and um what's the crazy guy who used to be a mormon missionary who wants to live forever um you must know this guy uh is he in silicon valley yeah 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 i know who you're talking about i don't uh i don't know his name but yeah Yeah, he he tracks everything and he's like getting blood supplements from his son and yeah yeah and so for him a problem okay he wants to live forever which is a problem because because you know in god's design originally man is meant to live forever so um but there's a difference between curing and you know an illness or a disease or an injury and uh, augmenting with technology a natural capacity hmm so yeah it's interesting uh, o'donovan doesn't really go on this so we're a little off road but but it's it's stuff that's always at the edge of what he's talking about and it's worth Mm -hmm. sort of raising that for the reader Here's, I think, as close as I can see him getting to addressing this. Because, again, I think he's aware of these as problems. But he's just trying to stay more focused than we do here on the Ed Fontes podcast. Mm-hmm. On, on 39, uh, at the end of that same paragraph where he's talking about false teeth and compensating for a lack which is caused by disease without actually aiming to cure the problem at its source. Uh, he says, <clears throat> these things which it is good to do, these are things which it's good to do and which it's good for medicine to be involved in doing. So he's like, look, robotic eyes... You know, blades for legs, you know, these compensation techniques are good, but medicine, you know, and medicine should be involved in it. But they could not have an overriding claim to be done, comparable to the claim of those that are threatened by illness or injury to be healed and made well. Okay, so uh, what he's saying is <clears throat> they are claims that are in contradic- they're in uh, conflict with one another the claim to cure and the claim to compensate and medicine, which, you know, in, in his, um, Christian mind, first, first rule is do no harm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when those claims are in conflict, the curative claim has the overriding claim. That's the one that you have to start with. The compensatory mm-hmm. claim comes in when the curative claim cannot, uh, be accomplished. So I think in his mind, this is the, this is the great intellectual bulwark against the transhumanist project because the medical doctor is supposed to have knowledge of the health of the body. I go in there with my mangled leg and I say to the doctor, give me the blades. I'm, I'm, I want to be, give me rocket ships instead of legs. (laughs) I want to be able to be the fastest person that's ever lived. And the doctor doesn't just do what I want because I want it. Even if the compensatory is going to make me better than the curative, his primary goal is, can we cure the leg? And if we can, I think he would say, even if it's suboptimal, if it's, if it can accomplish the good of helping you to walk around and be a healthy person, even if you're never going to be quite back at a hundred percent, if you're, if you're basically can't be an elite athlete anymore, but we can make it so that you can get around Hmm. the overriding claim is to cure. Mm-hmm. rather than to compensate. And so mm-hmm. in the same way, if somebody comes in and they're just like, I don't want these eyes anymore. Give me the robot eyes. Even though your eyes are fine, they would have to look at you and say, there's nothing to cure here. This is like, I know, I, I know you've got them back there. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really think that's going to be happening at some point, you know, mm-hmm. give me the, give me the robotic arm. I want to be able to lift a thousand pounds with, you know, give me the upgrade. Yeah. 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 And, I've got enough social credit, you know. Right. Just <laughs> plug me into the Borg. The, so, so if medicine has the, you know, inner uh, fortitude to recognize that there's this distinction between a curative and a compensatory, and that the curative is the primary claim because medicine is about the health of the body, the health, the good of the human body is health, and we we can actually articulate what that is to ourselves, then we can always be able to make these proper prudential judgments and say, no, 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 what we're here to do is cure. And where Mm. we can't cure, we can compensate. Okay. Your teeth fell out. Uh, we'll give you, we'll give you more teeth, you know, but we're not just taking your teeth out to give you more teeth because, you know, you've been smoking crack and your teeth are hideous now. Like you, Mm -hmm. you should brush your teeth and take care of the teeth that you've got. And as long as they're functioning, we're going to leave them in your face.
So having covered his sort of, well, introduced at least this question of cure, circumvention and compensation, uh, on page 39, he does then lay out what distinguishes gamete donation from other forms of compensation for infertility. Uh, so I, I began reading the sentence there seamlessly into my own. Um, what distinguishes gamete donation <laughs> By the from end other of this, of- our goal is to be Oliver O'Donovan. <laughs> As he should have, have been. <laughs> have ascended to be streaming through, through been idolized, yeah. Um, so what distinguishes gamete donation from other forms of compensation for infertility in vitro fertilization with embryo replacement, for example, is the involvement of the third party, a personal representative, to take the place at a crucial point of one of the partners in begetting. Um, so again, it's just a good point to remind us. He's talking here about third party donation he's not talking about the 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 question of you know a couple who kind of put their own uh, gametes on ice and you know the woman's fer- the woman's egg fertilized with the husband's uh, sperm is placed inside her womb you know which is right. a different but obviously related ethical issue she's been um, she's been leaning in recently at the job and she can't get pregnant right now but she'd like to in a few years so we're going to put mm-hmm. it all Put it all in the fridge and bring it back out when it's time to, to have kids. That's not what he's. That's not what he's talking about. He's yeah. talking about a third party getting involved. Yeah, the dude from the catalog. Yeah, or a lady yeah. from or, the catalog. Or lady, you know, yes, I guess. Or or the surrogate, which is the one that you said earlier. For they, that would be a third party. Well, no, because that's not yes. gamete donation. So he's not talking about that. To clarify, right now he's not. No, he goes right, on to get that into later, later in the chapter, and I, I think. I, if I've read him right, I think he says it, it all amounts to the same thing, really, um, whether it's gametes or whether, whether it's the womb. Um, although he'll talk about who has more of a claim, essentially, to be the mother than uh, when it comes to the womb or the gametes. Um, but that's we'll get to that later on. He um, he he says here that um, the third party getting involved this is the same page. He calls it a personal representative, which is crucial. And they're taking the place of one of the par- partners in the begetting. And he's like, he says, look, it's difficult because with a personal representative in begetting, uh, begetting is exclu- an exclusively personal and private act. Um, you know, I live here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like begetting is a personal and private act. Uh, you know, there's certain times of the year, certain months, you go out and the nice San Francisco sunshine. And it seems like people are attempting some uh, very public public acts. Yeah, they be getting <laughs> with one another. Um, so what, what, does he, what does he mean by that, Reese? Uh, maybe is this one of those things that does uh, date it slightly. Um, I guess when you see uh, public sexuality um, and... Perhaps even in parts of San Francisco, one would still be arrested for performing the fullness of the marriage act in public. Um, I don't know. Um, But um, I think when people are doing that, even these days, what they are... the, The purpose is not to conceive a child in public. The purpose is to have sex in public. Um, which I guess is arises from their own divorce of those two things, those those two goods of sexual activity. Um, you know, I, it basically means that that when generally when we beget children and have sex, it is done um, discreetly and, and privately and, and behind closed doors. But then, say even if that's not the case, it's still a, a private and personal act in the sense that. Uh, someone else can't do it for you. Yes. So I actually, I, I brought this up in part because I wanted to make the precisely the distinction that you got us to, because I'm not sure he actually means it's done in private. Mm-hmm. I think he means it's essentially a private act. There's, mm-hmm. there's a, it, it takes place in a hidden space, which is not sort of publicly participative or participable. Participatory. I, participatory thank you yeah so the and that that space is you know in the inner workings of the sexual organs that are mm-hmm. doing the begetting there's it's a um it's a personal act human persons have to be involved and mm-hmm. the number of human persons is two 
Um, and it is a, a private act because in the sort of mysterious inner sanctum of the human body where it's taking place, um, it's, it's hidden from view, even in the mm. most sort of explicit attempt to make it public. And again, he doesn't address this, but I'm just interested as we go through this to note sort of points of difference between the father and the mother, even more private in a sense for the father, because until very recently in human history, it's impossible to prove paternity um, in any conclusive way, which is why mm. kind of paterns- paternity is established by law, um, whereas yep, paternity that's right. is sort of evident to anybody who was there when the child was born. Um, <clears throat> yeah. yeah, okay. So, so the issue is then why... Uh, having an anonymous sperm donor, AID is what you know, the official um, name for this practice is, which will use shortly artificial insemination by donor. The reason that's different from, say, getting a tooth or a false leg um, is because it introduces a third party into what is meant to be an exclusively personal and private act. Personal and private meaning what we've just defined them as. Um, right. It, it would be like, <clears throat> to go back to the prosthetic leg, it'd be like, not instead of attaching the, the blade to your leg, we're going to attach, you know, Steve... Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take your leg, which ends at the knee, and kind of graft it onto another guy's knee, <laughs> and then you will live in a permanent three-legged race yeah, for the rest yeah. of your life. That's right. kind of what we have here. Yes. Right, right, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. And so and so then he he goes into and this is probably as far as we're gonna get today, but he he has an extended conversation about the nature of proxy relationships. So mm-hmm. he talks about just different things by proxy. What does it mean? And where are we used to seeing personal representatives? Um, so I don't know. Can you think of any examples of personal representatives? Have you ever had a personal representative represent you at anything? Or have you ever represented someone else at something? Uh, I'm currently in the process of, my wife and I are currently in the process of getting our um, lasting power of attorney done. Um, so what, that, you know, even, if, what does that mean? Do you, you have, you have to go to a it. barrister for this? Uh, through a solicitor, yes. Okay. Um, as a in, solicitor. if she, uh, an, a lawyer, yeah. Um, <laughs> if, if she, you know, if if one of us were mentally incapacitated and the other needed to, like, you know, make our medical decisions for us, or um, I don't know, access money in an account that. One of only has one of our names on, or, or you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, or if that happened to both of us, then who would have the power of attorney over our um, over our things and make what are our medical decisions, but make them on behalf of us? You know, that would be I, one. I think we, we would call this a trust. Yeah, yes, yeah, a similar kind of thing. Or you know, when you're, you know, I've I've been in class with Colin's dad. He's a very sharp guy, um, but maybe maybe one day. You know, the sort of the lights upstairs will go off, and Colin, you'll be in a position where you need to make decisions for him and as him and presumably mm-hmm. there's a legal setup in place that will allow you to do that so that the doctors don't just turn the machine off um without you know without somebody being consulted about it yeah 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 yeah, yeah that's right I, when i was reading it i was thinking um and so that's a sort of medical legal example um i i think there's also uh he he talks about financial transactions, so you could have a lawyer represent your interests, you know. Yeah, so I guess in, in the example we just gave, it's because you can't represent yourself, that mm-hmm. that person represents you, whereas there will be other examples where you are perfectly capable of representing yourself, but you choose for a proxy right. to do that I'm, thing. I'm busy. Voting, someone, can vote, someone can be your proxy vote, let's say. That's right, that's right. And I actually think in the in the English history, there were a lot of young men who made their fortune by stepping in as the proxy for like a low-level noble person. They would pay you if you were a commoner to go fight in your stead when there was like a draft and your family had to send some a certain number of people. You could, instead of sending your kids, you could basically hire somebody else's kids to go step in for them. So this is a sort of proxy legal relationship. The one that uh, comes to my mind is, um, I think people on the who are listeners, hopefully we don't lose listeners over this, know that I'm involved with uh, unionism. And, uh, you know, when I, what does it mean for me to negotiate a contract in the union is different than for me to negotiate a contract when I'm working as a consultant. So I do some work as a consultant. Anyone wants to hire me, happy to be hired. <laughs> um, but, uh, but... If I'm negotiating as a consultant, 
what what that means is I show up and I say, here's my terms, here's what I want, here's what I can provide for you. And the person who's benefiting on the end of that negotiation process is, is me and hopefully the person I'm negotiating with. If I'm When I show up as a union negotiator, I show up and while I may benefit from that contract, sometimes, sometimes I might not, right? It's perfectly legal for me as a union representative to negotiate a contract for a bunch of people that I'm, I'm not going to be governed by the contract at all. Um, and in that case, you're representing their interests. This is one reason why a lot of people don't like unions. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people will say, well, I, I think I can negotiate my own contract better. I can get better terms for myself. Um, but what it, what it is, is a collective negotiation wherein there's a single representative. And actually that is how politics works as well in most countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is, or just, this is the traditional way of thinking about politics. The head of state, there's, there's someone in whom is vested the interest of the common good for yeah, the rest is, of the Which year. is why the whole kind of, not my president, not my king kind of rhetoric is fundamentally absurd because, <clears throat> yeah. you know, yes, it's a rhetorical point, but um, it is your, he is your president and he is your king and, you know, you can do something about that if you want, but until that point, they are yours and represent you. Yeah. Um, but so, so the point, I'm sorry, if you wanted to say more on that. No, no, no. He, 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 I was, we're both going towards the pivot. He says, well, what, what about marriage by proxy? You know, yeah. could I send somebody to marry, uh, you know, my old lady for me? <laughs> what <do> you... uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, or baptism he gives. Which, um, you, no one, no, no one can be baptized. But I, I'm actually surprised. Heart. I'm surprised he didn't, um, he didn't talk about ancient Sparta because you could actually send somebody to marry your old lady by proxy. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. I mean, obviously we're, I'm prevaricating about the meaning of marriage here. He says that there were cases, and I think there were cases in, um, in like the middle ages and stuff of, of marriage by proxy, because somebody would stand in the public ceremony and make you the vow on your behalf to the spouse. Cause you're off fighting the war or whatever. And when you come home, you're going to consummate the marriage. But they would not consummate the marriage because this was a Christian practice. In the pre-Christian world, it was actually, you could be married to the person, have made the vow, but say, I actually would prefer his kid to my kid because he's a better <laughs> version of me than I am. I think he, this, is, this is before Braveheart comes out. So, you know, Prima Nocta hasn't had its... Uh, its I've heard that that was never actually real. <laughs> no. But, I, yeah, I, okay. I, I enjoy the myth that it is and... <laughs> Michael yeah. Scott brings it up in an episode of The Office without knowing what it is. As, a, as um, an Englishman, you you enjoy the myth, but the Scottish do not enjoy the myth. <laughs> no, less a fan, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, and so, but then this leads to a point where he says, on near the bottom of page 39, the more private the dealings, the more difficult it is to accept the notion of personal representation. So marriage and the consummation that that involves and the kind of, you know, fundamental nature of marriage law. I think, Colin, you've got to take the sort of marriage law precedes all other law. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's your, you know, not, not just your take, but... No, no, that's that's my take. I invented it. <laughs> <laughs> the hottest of takes. Um, I did not yeah. steal this from Aristotle's politics. It's just straight <laughs> out of my brain. Uh, and uh, baptism, you know, the, the, the individual before God, um, those things are things that just cannot be donated proxy. And so the question now arises, is the begetting of a child of the same nature? Well, and then he does something uh, quite Christian, which is, uh, you know, I guess should be unsurprising. Good of him. Talks yeah. talks about the Bible. Throws us a bone. Yeah. 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 Right there. He says, in the Old Testament, uh, we got two different patterns, uh, which he just says can give us an inkling of how we could conceive of this idea. So this is on page 40 now. Um, and the first of these, he's, he calls it the patriarchal pattern. And so he, he contrasts these as the patriarchal pattern and the... Bah, 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 What's the other one the, called? The, the, the leverate marriage. Uh, know and the lever- today, yeah. yeah, the leverite marriage. So the patriarchal pattern is uh, my wife is barren, you know, but obviously because we live in antiquity, we've got to, and we're rich. You know, part of what it means to be rich is you have a bunch of slaves. Um, and, you know, my wife is very close with one of these slaves. She would like a kid and cannot seem to have a kid no matter how hard we try. And so she says... Uh, you know, 
take this slave and if you can if you can get her pregnant we're going to have that as my kid that'll that'll be our kid and you know this makes some sense in part because you have to imagine this is like still very common in the bay area if you are married and you have a kid and you're extremely wealthy you don't raise that kid yourself you bring in a, <laughs> a hired person to help you raise the kid you know that's mm-hmm. that's what you do if you have the money to do it um yeah and and so you know, the slave was going to be involved anyway in raising the kid. The slave was probably going to be involved in breastfeeding the kid. Why? why who? You know, what he what he says is as he sort of closes this one out is that the, and so he he goes through. This is like Abraham and uh, and also Jacob both go through this process. Um, <clears throat> he says that uh, in this case, we have to keep in mind that these representatives. Are, are very close with the family, right? So this is like a, a version wherein you've got some someone who's close and legally bound to the family mm. and has a close personal connection to the family and was going to have that close personal connection with the family and with the kid, regardless of whether or not the kid was had by Sarah or by Hagar. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Sarah and Hagar, right? Did I get that right? Hagar, I Hagar. Say, but... All right, yeah, well. Tomato, tomato. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so that's the first instance he gives, and it's just—it was interesting to me as I first read through it that he doesn't mention the, the obvious facts, which is apparent in the, um, well, certainly, certainly with Sarah and Hagar is apparent in the biblical narrative that this is a bad idea, um, and <laughs> Abraham should not should not have done it. Um, but then, of course, you know, Abraham, uh, Jacob has um, children with two wives and two different maidservants, and is never overly explicitly rebuked for that so you know this is a this is a different this is a biblical theological question um but the problems with it o'donovan actually teases out later on um so you have that and then you have the lever at marriage which um if people are not familiar with that is the um concept established within the uh the the levitical law that um if uh, a man dies uh and leaves his wife without a son his brother or near relative um should uh, step in and give that woman a son um possibly arguably marry her i think there's some contention on whether um she becomes the brother's wife or they just perform the act and and conceive a child um and then that son is legally that of the deceased brother so that his name persists uh and also so that kind of in israelite history his inheritance in the land is not lost um this is the kind of dynamic that um that uh animates the story of ruth with boaz stepping in the other kinsman redeemer who doesn't want to step in um and also um the story of judah and tamar genesis 38 um with judah's sons um uh, owing Tamar a child and eventually Judah himself um, our colleague Alistair Roberts for him everything seems to come back to Genesis 38 he's uh, he's obsessed Alistair Roberts only wants one thing uh, <laughs> it's disgusting um, yeah so uh, the, the lever of marriage is a very odd one because it is enshrined in the Levitical law and that is crazy enough but then in Genesis 38 which is many 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 years before the Levitical law is given it is assumed that a lever at marriage is the righteous course of action mm. and Judah is uh is um is rebuked uh yeah. Yeah. within the narrative um for um failing to provide Tamar with the lever at uh marriage from the third son which uh, which she's owed and then eventually is that's exacted on himself and the confession at the end of Genesis 38 is that Jude, uh, Tamar acted more righteously than Judah um which just kind of blows our minds to, to look at look at something like that as moderns. And so O'Donovan is he's just he's a very fair ethicist, like we touched on earlier. He's not a reactionary. Um he's putting out this biblical instance of where a form of representation which we actually recoil at is in fact divinely kind of mandated. Just a sort of interesting side note about uh, the the Leverite marriage piece, but that, that was very well summarized. Um, you know, most Jews would would recognize this is like not practiced and has not been practiced for many many centuries. Like they, this is not commonly done at all, like if ever in the Bible. Even and that's precisely your point, right? Is that like even mm-hmm. even you know uh, Jude Judah is like not doing the thing that he knows mm-hmm. he's supposed to be doing. So. Because it's a little weird, 
It's just like yeah. you know. Well, it's the, it's in you have the first. I can't remember the name of the first son who dies because he's wicked, and then it's Onan who spills his seed on the ground because he doesn't want. He's like the kin, the other kinsman redeemer in Ruth who doesn't want to beget children that will not be his. Um, so he, he wants the pleasure, the but not the end of the pleasure. You know exactly. What I mean? Yes. Yeah. And this is where the term onanism comes from, um, or self abuse, as as uh, the English christened it <laughs> centuries later. Uh, and then the third son, whose name I've also drawn a blank on right now. Um, uh, yeah. So Onan doesn't want to do it, and is struck down. And then by then, Judah's like, "Oh, this woman's cursed. I don't want my kids sleeping with this cursed witch woman." But what's really interesting to to me is that um, in an attempt to sort of think about the meaning of this passage um, has actually led to some pretty radical medical practice in, uh, in the state of Israel. So Israel, the, the nation state of Israel, friends of the show, <laughs> friends of the show, that they say that um, like, this is the, the, the interpretation of this passage has guided them in thinking about, uh, fertility techniques and fertility uh, practices and medical practices to the extent that they're one of the only countries, for example, where it's legal to harvest sperm from the dead uh, in order that their name might not be blotted out from Israel. And so um, like the IDF, for example, uh, this is one of the things that they do. If they find a soldier who's dead on the ground, who doesn't have any kids yet, they're like, all right, let's, you know, let's get in there. Let's, you know, make sure their name doesn't get blotted out from Israel. No comment on, on if this is if this is good or bad, but I just it's interesting to think that the stuff O'Donovan is talking about here, the stuff that he's drawing on, even from the most ancient possible sources, this is a subject of conversation that that is mm. influencing contemporary medical ethics and uh, decisions that are being made. And you know, just just worth, worth saying, you're sort of talking about. Um, and we began this episode by talking about the typical modern marriage. And, and right there in the bottom of page 40, and then we should get to how he concludes this paragraph. He says, uh, we are here very far from the typical modern case in which the husband and wife want a child for the sake of their own fulfillment and that of their marriage. So I take this to be both him saying, showing the dif- distance between marriage and children as conceptualized in the Old Testament and today. But also I take it to be a bit of a rebuke of the modern conception because you began by saying, you know, the, the purpose of marriage is for the natural good of the procreation of children. Uh, but here I, I want to note, he emphasizes the, that it's about what I want and, and what I want is about my fulfillment. Um, and so this sort of the modern merit conception of marriage is about me mm-hmm. and my fulfillment and my desires uh, as opposed to thinking of ourselves as a thing with a nature, which is hope, which, which is, it is good to fulfill, right? It's good for nature to achieve its end. Um, and that's, that's, if, if you think of it that way, you can see a little bit more clearly how you get from the Old Testament to the contemporary situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you want to talk about the very last sentence of the paragraph? And then we'll yeah, sure. wrap this off. Yeah. So yeah. So I think kind of what O'Donovan's done thus far is kind of tee up the question of compensation over cure, but then point out that, but actually, you know, compensation as such is not the problem um, because there are plenty of forms of medical compensatory treatment that we're happy with. And then similarly, the representation here, um, the issue he said the issue is that it introduces a third party. Um, but there are clearly times where we are happy with people to be kind of you know, re- representative of us, and the Old Testament gives us some um, quite uncomfortable examples to us. And so he concludes, and but after this he'll go on to talk about different kinds of representation, um, which we'll get into next time, but he concludes this section, this is the middle of page 41, by saying, from this point of view we must contrast the type of representation envisaged by both these ancient patterns with that envisaged by our modern practice of gamete donation, in which the representative is deliberately anonymous mm-hmm. so um the the two kinds of the two instances he's given the patriarchs and, and elaborate marriage um that they are different but there's there's not anonymity there whereas um still today the vast majority of donors in gamete donation remain anonymous i think it seems more normal to us now to to, to, to for there to be situations where you know 
someone chooses to kind of donate themselves, you know, probably in things like, I don't know, Phoebe and friends, like having her brother's triplets, you know, um, has sort of normalized that kind of arrangement for us, at least in kind of how we think of it. The reality is that the vast majority of these situations um, involve anonymous donation. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll go on after this to kind of talk about different kinds of representation um, to, to tease you for next time, representations of effacements and representations of replacements. Mm. Um, but we will get into that next time. Okay, well, there we go. We've been um, reading through um, Forgotten or Made. Uh, again, you can get that on the Davenant Institute website, um, where you'll order it by Amazon.com. Um, we only have the rights to reprint this in North America, but Amazon.com do deliver anywhere in the world, so um, you can get it uh, wherever you are, wherever you're listening. Um, we'll move on to talk about what else we're reading. Um, Colin, you, you're a busy guy this term. Are you still just reading to work? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of, uh, off-roading and I'm reading, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get back through the brothers Karamazov. So just, Ooh. a just a little 900 page detour. Um, <laughs> and, uh, gosh, the, the, the thing that strikes me relative to what we just read is that, uh, when Fyodor Karamazov is introduced, he's introduced as being born onto a land which was valued at 1,000 souls. And it says, as as they used to say. And so mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting because I was mentioning how, you know, if you were wealthy in the old days, you, you would have people who were sort of under your care who, uh, and that's still there in the 1800s when Dostoevsky's writing. He's writing about a world in which people understood their rank relative to other people based upon how many mouths you had to feed, which were also generating value for you, right? And you had a reciprocal responsibility to one another. Um, it's a bit it, more grim than like uh, Pride and Prejudice. Oh, there's Mr. Darcy. He has at least 10,000 a year. <laughs> right, yes. That, we've moved into a different phase of capital. Uh, but I wonder how far apart we've really gone. Because I, I hear that if you're, like a, if you're like a CEO or something, and you, you, know, you get into like these CEO elephant bumping type conversations, part of how you recognize your, your rank is like how many people... Are under you how big is your corporation is like how how many customers plus uh you know mm-hmm. employees and whatever it's not really about the money on some level right it's about uh it's about attention and competency and hierarchies um mm-hmm. which are more than just more than just cash i mean i'll put it another way there's something faintly embarrassing about having like tons of money and no idea how to deal with it or what to do with it um <laughs> So, anyhow, how about yourself? What are you What are you reading? I'm not that far, obviously, into Brothers Karamazov yet. I'm, I'm in, you know, the first first few chapters. You let us, you let us know if you get through all 900 pages. Um, I what will. am I reading? I, I have uh, I've revisited um, Ted Hughes's birthday letters. Um, so don't know. It's Ted I don't Hughes. know who that um, is or what that is. You don't know who Ted Hughes is? No, Ted Hughes. Um, I think he was English poet laureate and uh, married to Sylvia Plath. And oh, all, yeah. okay. I, I know who this is. Yeah, and all the Plath stands hate him because they're like, he's a filthy misogynist and he's the reason she <laughs> stuck her head in the oven um, and, you know, edited all of her books uh, in ways that she apparently wouldn't have wanted after she'd, uh, after she'd, uh, she died. Um, but so, but, but Birthday Letters is, you know, was came out in the 90, late 90s and was hugely basically his sort of hugely anticipated, highly autobiographical collection of poems, um, many of which are which are largely kind of about Plath and their life together, uh, and many of which actually are in sort of direct conversation with poems that she wrote. Um, some share names. Um, some are in conversations with poems that she wrote, which themselves were in conversations with poems that he wrote. Um, so it's just a very dense uh, literary creation. It's, it's thick. There's a lot. There's a lot of poems in it. Um, and uh, I first read it ten years ago this semester, this term in my um, last year as an undergrad. And it's just like it's a book I associate with autumn. And I just you, had this moment want, on the first of October. I was like, "I got to take that book down." Yeah. Do you want a bit of advice? Go on. 
Don't marry a poet. <laughs> I'm good. You should have told my wife that. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're a poet. Yeah. Um, <coughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, 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 uh, yeah, it's just, it's, there are certain books you associate with certain times of year and you're like, I want to get that down. That's, that's, that's good autumn reading. And this was on for me. So, um, yeah, reading through Ted Hughes. Uh, and we'll move now into our spotlight where we tell you about something that's going on in the life of the Davenant Institute. And Colin is going to tell us what we are spotlighting today. We are spotlighting Hillary term, uh, Davenant Hall course registration. So Davenant Hall, we are, a refounding of the medieval university for the digital frontier, as uh, as I say, and you know we have a great lineup of courses that are being offered um, from from many of faculty who will be known well to the listeners of this podcast. Um, Alistair Roberts is doing one on biblical sources and political theology, which is awesome. Uh, you got Brad Littlejohn and Tim Jacobs doing Protestant moral theology. Uh, Ryan Hurd, it looks like, is going to be venturing outside of Thomas Aquinas, scandalously writing about Bonaventure. Uh, and I think there's going to be a Tolkien class, not taught by me, sadly. Um, uh, I will be teaching a course on rhetoric for preaching. And so if anybody out there gives homilies on a regular basis, highly recommend you come take this with myself and, and a good friend of mine, Dr. Danny Strange. Um, I'll be doing sort of classical rhetoric stuff. We'll be going through the Gorgias and, uh, and maybe touching on some Aristotle and some other texts. And then, uh, pastor, Dr. Reverend Danny Strange will be talking about what it's actually like being a pastor who has to preach on a regular basis. He's a, a great communicator. Um, and he's the, he's the pastor at my premium hot dog church, uh, that mm-hmm. I go to. So very excited to, to offer that class. Great stuff, yeah. And I, you know, full disclosure, I am a Davenant Hall uh, MLIT student, so I am somewhat biased, but I'm also very well informed because I'm paying money to take the degree and to take the classes, um, including Colin's classes, in fact, though not this one. Um, so um, Davenant Hall classes, if you've not taken one before, are entirely worth the money. You can audit for just $225 a class, um, live Zoom classes, great lectures, Um if you've not done one before, take the plunge. Um, it'll be an excellent way to, to spend uh, a couple of hours a week for, for 10 weeks. Um, there we go. Okay, well, we have um, hit our, um, what we're reading, hit our spotlight. And um, before we move to the end, just a reminder, I forgot to say this at the start of the show, um, Ad Fontes is a listener and reader-supported podcast. Um, so if you want to keep us uh, keep us in business and hear more of um, the kind of things we've been talking about, then ways you can do that are to directly support the Davenant Institute, visit our website and go to the giving tab and give directly and you could become a a davenant member where you get access to a whole host of davenant um uh, supplies and resources including a digital membership of Adfontes or you can take out an Adfontes subscription in digital or digital and print or even print only if that is how you prefer and you can visit the Adfontes journal website um, to take out subscriptions there if you want to support us okay now if uh, you have liked what you've heard today do all the things you should do when you like a podcast um, tweet about it um, or say post on X about it as we now have to say um, tell your friends tell your mother tell your church friends um, apparently there is a, a read-along of this book going on out there where people are listening to this podcast as they read through Begotten or Made. You know, that's just worlds within worlds there. Um, so maybe do that, have a read-along and listen to these podcasts. But if you don't like what you heard today, Colin, what should they do? If you didn't like what you heard today, what you have to do is go to your nearest <laughs> medical professional and you need to tell them that you want to win the 100-yard dash in the Olympics. And it, and I want you to test and see whether or not the curative actually does have an overriding claim over the compensatory. And if the doctor does not give you the surgery and says, no, you your legs are working fine, you cannot have a compensatory uh, set of springs attached to your hips, then and only then can you give us a one-star review. But if he actually does attach blades to your legs and, and you no longer have legs anymore, you can't. But on the plus side, you know, while you can't give us a one-star review, you're going to win the Olympics. So that's good. <laughs> you, get, you get something for nothing. Yeah. And you're, you know... <laughs> yeah, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Yeah. <laughs> 
Very good. Um, well, it's been great to have you. We will carry on um, with our Begotten or Made read-throughs and roughly every other episode, so we'll bring you something different next time. Um, yeah, until then, this is the Ad Fontes podcast. We are the editors, and we will see you next time. Bye.